Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. In this special episode, we examine the canonical Gospels in the conclusion of our deep survey of the Bible, a book that greatly inspired the exploration and shaped the colonization of North America. When first written, the Gospels were called memoirs or memories. Only later were they referred to as Gospels, meaning glad tidings or good news in Greek. The four canonical or sacred Gospels that tradition attributes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the primary sources for the life and message of Jesus. Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast has graciously agreed to share with us his views on the history of this remarkable book. The Gospel of Mark was not highly regarded in early Christianity. The very earliest fathers thought its language and structure crude, but they accepted that it was the earliest gospel. By the time Christianity was made the official religion of the empire, 200 years later, the fathers decided that Matthew was the earliest. Mark, they held, was an uncreative summary of that gospel. Mark only survived because of its supposed connection to the Apostle Peter. The Gospels of John, Matthew and Luke are much more widely read than Mark. Like all the Gospels, Mark is anonymous. Early church fathers held Mark to be a companion of the disciple Peter in Rome. He was said to be Peter's interpreter. It's not clear whether they meant he was Peter's translator or Peter's editor and ghostwriter. Modern scholars accept that someone called Mark was the book's author, but they are dubious that he is the person mentioned in Acts or that he was a companion to Peter. It is unclear if Mark was a Gentile or a Jew, and if his audience was Gentile or Jewish, Greek-speaking or Latin-speaking. Perhaps the best bet is that Mark was a second-generation diaspora Jew living in Italy. Mark has to explain Judean customs to his audience. Mark gets the geography of Judea wrong. He explains Greek money by comparing it to Roman currency. From various comments that Mark drops, his audience is assailed. Scholars are agreed that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. It was written sometime between Nero's persecution of the Christians after the Great Fire of Rome and the aftermath of the destruction of the Temple under Nero's successor, the Emperor Vespasian. Matthew and Luke certainly know of the Temple's fall. Whether Mark does is a moot point. All this would place the Gospels' creation in the very narrow time range of the year 64 to the early 70s. Mark is notorious for his inelegant street-language Greek, so unlike the more graceful language of his fellow evangelists. It may be that all the evangelists originally wrote that way, but Mark alone couldn't afford a good editor to polish his prose. Whatever the reason, Mark is raw and energetic. He is punchy. He often swaps tenses from the past to the present in the middle of a thought. That is common in spoken English and English fiction, but rarely seen otherwise in English prose. Mark often begins a clause with the word and. Mark is especially fond of the word immediately. Mark reinterpreted the old Jewish concepts of son of man and the very vague idea of a messiah. He created the idea that the Messiah was not a victorious general, but a suffering servant. Mark comforted his readers by explaining that Jesus' death was not an accident, not a calamity. God mandated his adopted son's suffering death. 
Jesus died as a ransom to save earthly sinners. Very soon now, God would reward us by bringing about the end of times, and Jesus would return in triumph. Mark is the most apocalyptic of the evangelists. The other evangelists wrote a generation or two later. By then, no one thought that Jesus was coming back next Tuesday. The later gospel writers depict the life of Jesus as a pivotal moment in human history, but they do not expect his imminent return. Mark does. On to the evangelist and the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's traditional symbol is an angel or winged man. Matthew is the lengthiest of the gospels. Matthew has long been regarded as the premier gospel and has long been the most popular. It has everything you could ask for in a gospel. Lots of stories, lots of parables. The earliest references to Matthew that we can really trust only date from the late 2nd century, around the year 180. The fathers attributed the gospel to one Matthew, the disciple and tax collector from Capernaum, mentioned in the gospels and in the book of Acts. Tradition held that he wrote in Hebrew while Peter and Paul were in Rome. Matthew's status as a disciple propelled him to the top of the gospel charts. Neither Mark nor Luke were disciples. This tradition is almost certainly wrong. If Matthew was a disciple and eyewitness, why does he use so much of Mark, who was neither? If Matthew was a disciple, why is his book riddled with anachronisms? Matthew often has characters use the word rabbi, a title which only became popular after the fall of the temple. If Matthew wrote in Hebrew, why does his Greek match so often the Greek text of Mark? Few today believe that Matthew was a disciple. The consensus is that the gospel was written after the fall of the temple, somewhere between the years 80 to 100. Many scholars believe that the gospel was written in the great city of Antioch in Syria. Matthew is surely an urbanite. Where the other gospels use the term village, Matthew always substitutes the word city. Matthew doesn't do villages. Matthew includes almost all of the Gospel of Mark, more than Luke does. Matthew also shares a large amount of material with the Gospel of Luke. Matthew treats his Mark and source critically. Matthew improves Mark's poor Greek and remedies what he sees as Mark's coyness about Jesus' messianic identity. He is much kinder to the disciples than Mark. Only Matthew confirms Peter as the rock of the church and records Peter's exclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. Like Mark, Matthew also believes that Jesus died as a ransom, that he was the Messiah and Son of God. Was Jesus a human whom God adopted, or was he a divine being who existed from the beginning of time? Matthew isn't interested. Matthew is much more keen to show us Jesus as a Jew. In his first chapter, Matthew's detailed genealogy shows that Jesus is an anointed one of the line of David. Matthew also presents Jesus as a new lawgiver, one who can interpret the laws of Moses as they should be interpreted. Where Mark says that the parables are meant to hide Jesus' message from the crowd, Matthew says the parables reveal Jesus' message. Where Matthew really differs from Mark is by adding five long speeches by Jesus, the famous Sermon on the Mount amongst them. These five speeches of Jesus may be Matthew's way of paralleling the five books of the Torah. Matthew does some odd things with Mark. He often takes a story from Mark and tells it twice. Not only does Matthew double the story, Matthew also doubles the number of characters in the story. 
we will never know who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. The only question we can really ask is, was Matthew a Jew or a Gentile? We are perplexed. On the one hand, Matthew appears as the most Jewish of the Gospels. To avoid saying the name of God, forbidden to Jews, Matthew uses an expression usually translated into English as Kingdom of Heaven. That is a phrase unknown to Mark and Luke. Kingdom of Heaven is actually an inadequate translation of the Greek. The Greek expression is much more dynamic. A better translation would be God's kingly rule. The evangelist goes to lengths to show Jesus as a Jew. Matthew cites the Old Testament more than 50 times to show that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in the Jewish scriptures. Matthew relies on Mark for the basics of his biography of Jesus, but he always adds little asides. Matthew takes some story or incident from Mark and then adds a coda about how Mark's story fulfills a passage from the Old Testament. With Matthew's preoccupation with Jewish scriptures, surely it is obvious that Matthew was a Jew. The Gospel of Matthew was written in the decades after the paramount Jewish institution of the temple was annihilated in the year 70. Jewish society fractured into new groups. We never again hear of the Essenes, the Zealots, the Sicarii, the priests, the Levites, and the Sadducees. We have little idea what became of them and who their political and social descendants were. There is one exception to that. Most scholars regard the rabbis as descendants of the Pharisees, although some argue much of their heritage was actually Essene. Matthew's readers were one of the new Jewish communities emerging after the fall of the temple. Matthew's community was engaged in a struggle for followers against the other communities who competed for the soul of Judaism. One view is that Matthew's readers were inside Judaism, attending the synagogues. They believed that what we would call Christianity was simply the right way to be a Jew. Of course a Jew must follow Torah. None of the other evangelists believe that. Paul spent his whole ministry arguing that Jesus had absolved his Gentile fans from adherence to Jewish law. Another view is that Matthew's community was outside Judaism, rejecting the synagogues. Matthew's readers were Jews with an attitude, Jews who had no truck with mainstream Judaism and the emerging rabbinical movement. In this view, Matthew's community was beginning to see itself as separate from all the other Jews. Until recently, Matthew's harsh polemic was interpreted as unequivocally anti-Jewish. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. On to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is part of a package. 
from the earliest times, the author of Luke was also taken to be the author of the book of Acts. Amazingly, that is still the overwhelming professorial consensus. The language of the two books is so similar that any other conclusion would require very serious argument. Both books are anonymous. The Gospel of Luke is almost as long as that of Matthew. Luke includes somewhat less of the Gospel of Mark than Matthew, and has rather more original material than Matthew. Of course, the two share the Q source, since Q is defined as that which Matthew and Luke have in common. Luke sits with Mark as the least admired of the Gospels. Yet the Gospel of Luke has many of our favourite stories about Jesus. Luke is the only Gospel with the parables of the Good Samaritan, the barren fig tree, the cure of the crippled woman, prodigal son, the dishonest steward, the rich man, the Pharisee, and the tax collector. Luke has much more to say about the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist than the other Gospels. Only Luke tells us of the connection between the two. Only Luke tells us of the Annunciation of John the Baptist to his father Zechariah, and the Annunciation of Jesus to Mary, and of Mary's visit to her cousin Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist. Only Luke has the three canticles celebrating the birth of John and Jesus. Only Luke tells us of the shepherds tending their flocks by night. In Luke, and only in Luke, do we hear of a second child before Pilate, and the child before Herod Antipas. Luke has a much longer account of the resurrection than the other Gospels. Luke is the only Gospel to narrate Jesus' ascension to heaven. Luke is the most polished of the evangelists. He opens his Gospel with a literary prologue typical of Hellenistic and Roman writers. His characters don't just say things, they declaim. Luke's vocabulary is the most extensive. He tries hard to use correct political terms. In his opening chapters, he provides a wealth of historical dates to precisely locate his stories. The other Gospels make no such attempt. Mark was written around the year 70. Add on 10 years for the Lucan author to become acquainted with that Gospel. That provides us with the earliest date for the Gospel, the year 80. The Church Fathers picked up on references to one Luke in some of Paul's letters. On the flimsiest of grounds, they decided that Luke was a doctor and companion to the Apostle Paul, who died unmarried in Greece in ripe old age. If the Lucan author really wrote around the year 80, then he could have been a companion to Paul, but not if he wrote around the year 140. Arguments can be made either way. A minority of scholars say that since the Lucan author knows none of Paul's letters, he must have written early in our time frame before Paul's letters were widely circulated. Most scholars argue the opposite. Everyone agrees that the Lucan author also wrote the book of Acts. Paul's letters contradict Acts over and over. Paul cares not a whit about Jesus' life on earth. The Lucan author writes an entire biography of Jesus. Paul is preoccupied with the cosmic significance of Jesus' death. The Lucan author thinks of Jesus as a martyred prophet. If the Lucan author really was Paul's companion, he did not listen to a single word that Paul said. The majority opinion is that the Lucan author was not an eyewitness to the apostolic mission, and he did not know Paul. He wrote perhaps 70 years after Paul's death, much closer to the year 140 than 80. Was Luke a Jew or Gentile? For many years, Luke was held to be a Gentile. 
his gospel shows the least interest in the Jews. He knows little of Jewish customs. He is ignorant of the geography of Judea. Nowadays there is no consensus. He could have been a Gentile. He could have been an upper-class Jew educated in Hellenistic schools. We just don't know. Matthew and Mark hold that Jesus' death was a ransom price paid to God to forgive earthly sinners. Whenever Luke borrows from Mark, he drops that idea. Time to tackle the odd man out, the immensely popular Gospel of John. The three most referenced books of the Christian Bible are Psalms, Matthew and John. In its final chapters, the Gospel itself claims the book was written by the unnamed beloved disciple. The beloved disciple is Peter's best buddy and friendly rival. While the book is coy to the point of disingenuousness about the disciple's identity, all the early fathers thought that he was the Apostle John, son of Zebedee. His Jewish friends called him Jochenorn, and his Greek companions, Ioannus. The Gospel of John reads as though it has passed through many hands, a succession of committees. The book is full of awkward transitions and narrative jumps, like a badly edited film. In chapter 5, for example, Jesus has been speaking in Jerusalem. In chapter 6, he is suddenly and inexplicably teleported across the Sea of Galilee. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus declares, Rise, let us be on our way and then stays put for three more chapters. Modern scholars attribute the book not to a single author, but to an entire school of thought, one we call the Johannine community. The Gospel of John reflects the trials and development of this school over the course of decades. The school encoded its struggles into the narrative of Jesus' life. We have no idea how this community related to the Jesus clubs founded by Paul, This community also wrote the three letters of John we find in the New Testament. All four works regard Jesus in a cosmological way that the other Gospels and Paul do not. All of them talk of the Word, of life, and knowledge. In all of them, a central theme is love one another. John the Apostle was also held to be the author of the book of Revelation. The author of Revelation does call himself John, but makes no claim to be either John the Apostle or John the Gospel writer. The Western Latin Church thought that Revelation was a doozy of a book, one obviously written by the Apostle. The Greek East thought it written by some other person called John. The time from 250 to the triumph of the Emperor Constantine, 60 years later, was a miserable era for both the Empire and the Christian community. The empire was assailed by Germans to the north and Persians to the east. Rome struggled to mount a military response. Central government collapsed in the face of constant military coups. International trade declined and cities were forced to become self-sufficient. The Roman economy slowly transformed from the freewheeling international trade zone established in the late Republic to something more like parochial feudalism. The state looked for scapegoats. It found them among the Christians. Constantine's immediate predecessors stabilised the empire. Constantine reversed the religious persecution of his mentors. He proclaimed freedom of worship for all. He promoted the Christian church. During this period, a man by the name of Eusebius took pen to papyrus. Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea Maritima. 
a small city on the Mediterranean coast of Judea, about 90 kilometres northwest of Jerusalem, not far from modern Haifa. He worked from 310 to 340. He witnessed his church pass from persecution to state support. Upon his death, somewhere between one quarter to one half of the imperial population were Christian. Eusebius wrote a comprehensive history of Christianity down to his own time. The importance of Eusebius cannot be underestimated. His history is filled with anecdotes and extensive quotations from earlier Christian writers. In innumerable cases, Eusebius' quotations are our only source of knowledge for many early Christian authors. Eusebius records the books he considers sacred. Eusebius is writing during a time when Christian bishops, like himself, first enjoyed the luxury of state protection and income. Time for a man to sit back and write a few good histories. Even at this late time, Eusebius is unsure about the New Testament. He makes an inventory of books divided into three categories, accepted, dubious, and rejected. Eusebius accepted the four Gospels and the letters of Paul, Acts, and Revelations. Of the other letters, only 1 John and 1 Peter. Eusebius questioned the same books that Irenaeus had, James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John. Eusebius rejected many books that other communities were reading. The very first time that someone presents us with exactly and precisely the New Testament canon we have today is in the year 367. By that time, the Christian church was a well-entrenched political and economic power within the empire, an empire divided in two. The western portion was under constant barbarian attack, economically stressed and politically unstable. The city of Rome had been just a minor town for decades. The wealthiest city in the empire was in the eastern portion, Alexandria in Egypt. Each January, its turbulent bishop Athanasius wrote a pastoral letter to his congregations, informing them of the date of the next Easter. In one such letter, he laid out his idea of the sacred books, corresponding exactly to our New Testament. We can't know if Athanasius was just putting forward his own ideas, or if he was reflecting common opinion. Athanasius' letter did not settle matters. For another century and more, the Latin West challenged the legitimacy of the letter to the Hebrews. The Greek East stuck with Eusebius and tried to ditch the letters that he thought dodgy, as well as the book of Revelation. How did the church end up with the books we now have? We are clueless. The canon was probably formed by the larger and more powerful Christian communities beating up on the powerless. Most of the church fathers are bullies from the wealthiest diocese. They hectored and harangued their opponents into submission. After the Jesus movement rejected Marcion's tiny list of sacred books, it reacted by expanding his canon. First off, it incorporated the entire Jewish Tanakh, the Old Testament. The Old Testament provided a model. The Old Testament began with histories. So would the New Testament, the Gospels and the Book of Acts. Including Acts was a major rebuff to Marcion. The church accepted Marcion's letters of Paul and threw in three more, the pastorals. Two letters to Timothy and one to Titus. Now the decisions became a lot harder. What about those other letters? James and Jude and John and Peter. And how wacky is that book of Revelations? After Christianity was institutionalized, its bishops decided that each book in the canon had to pass three tests. First, 
Was it Catholic? That is, was it known and used throughout the empire? Second, was it orthodox? That is, universally believed by all. Third, was it written by an apostle? These were all post hoc rationalizations. The second and third letters of John were unknown to the Greek East. The Greeks were cajoled into accepting them after the Latin West insisted that they were written by the same author as the first letter of John. No one complained about the dodgy ideas in some of the letters of Paul. The times when he implies Jesus was not human or he was merely adopted by God. But the Gospel of Peter and the Acts of John were excluded for broaching those same ideas. The letter of Barnabas was kicked out because it cited the book of First Enoch. But the letter of Jude did the same, yet it was retained. Other books were rejected not by their content, but because of guilt by association. All the Gnostic works suffered that fate, including the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of John was a fan favourite of the Gnostics, and barely made it into the New Testament. The criterion of apostolic authorship was easily twisted. The three letters attributed to John are anonymous. That didn't stop anyone claiming John as the author. The letter to the Hebrews is also anonymous, but became so popular it was attributed to Paul. There were dozens of letters floating around attributed to Peter, but only two made it into the New Testament. By the year 450, the list of books of the New Testament was well established. When the empire was falling apart, both Greek East and Latin West had agreed on the same collection of 27 books. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.